Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. When I was back here in July, I said I had a tendonitis issue. Now I have a boot on my foot. I told you I was sick. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's one of those things. I was in Albany, New York, <clears throat> and uh, heading to a board meeting in upstate New York, and 9 o'clock at night in the uh, airport, heading to get my rental car, and took a step, didn't turn it, didn't fall, didn't trip, just something inside the foot and ankle exploded. And so uh, it's been a crazy uh, couple weeks. So uh, it's good to be here. If you have your Bibles, uh, one of the greatest things I get to hear Pastor Cody do on a weekly basis is to say, open your Bibles. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, there's a pew Bible underneath the uh, pew that you're sitting on, and we're on page 927. Let me add my word of welcome to those of you who are joining us uh, by internet or by live stream. It's a privilege to uh, be a part of Christ Chapel. Making God known is not always an easy assignment, and God's servants are not immune to discouragement. Uh, Discouragement is a normal part of uh, life and uh, even of the most seasoned of saints. If you think back with Moses, Moses, I love uh, how the Living Bible translates Numbers chapter 11, when Moses and the Lord are having an argument back and forth, and he says, "Uh, did I give birth to all these kids? He's talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness. He said, are these kids mine? Uh, And he's sort of blaming God for putting him in leadership with those people. If you read Job, Job said, I I curse the day I was born. I I wish my mom had had a miscarriage when I was born because of what he was going through. Elijah, after a great uh, victory on uh, Mount Carmel, uh, flees from Jezebel, the wicked queen of the north, and uh, heads down to uh, a place near Beersheba. And he's got a pity party, and he said, of all the people, I'm alone and left. You know, and he uh, is thinking that he's the only faithful person, and God says, I've got thousands who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, David said, God, uh, how long am I going to pray and you're not going to answer me? Uh, How long am I going to have to be my own counselor? You know, when you're sitting on both sides of the counseling desk, you know you're in trouble. You know, how are you? Well, I'm not too good, you know. And there's a great session there in, in, in Psalm 13. You know, how long do I have to counsel myself, day and night? Uh, even Paul, as we're going to see in this chapter, faced some discouragement. And, and God steps into those kinds of lives in our kind of lives and says, uh, I don't want you to forget. Uh, I'm here and I'm helping. I'm working. You may not see it. You may not feel it on the immediate. But God's behind the scenes. A few weeks ago in our series, we saw in Acts chapter 14 that when Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel to those cities and made disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Life is tough, but the kingdom is coming. The second missionary journey was not an easy one, to say the least. And you see a map on the screen in some of the cities that Paul had recently visited at Philippi. You remember that he and Silas were fastened in stocks and put in the jail. At Thessalonica, he faced a mob-incited riot of, of, of men of rabble, which is Pastor Cody's favorite name for a rock band. 
You were here, you remember that. In Berea, the crowds were so agitated that they sent Paul off to Athens and, uh, and uh, Timothy and Silas stayed behind. When he got to Athens, as we saw last week, he, he mixed it up for the cause of Christ in the marketplace, in the synagogue, on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, with philosophers like the Stoics and the Epicureans, who were self-conflicted and uh, self-contradictory, but Paul preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. The combination of strong resistance, sparse results, strenuous travel, and spiritual warfare brought Paul to a level of discouragement that uh, might even surprise you. In his first letter to the Corinthians that he writes back to Corinth on his third missionary journey, he laments that on his arrival in Corinth, he came in much fear and trembling, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Here is an apostle who's been through the ringer. When he writes his second letter to the Corinthians, he rehearses his experiences. Now listen, we don't often think about this with Paul, but listen to it carefully. It's not in your notes. Uh, just let me read it for you. He's uh, defending his ministry to the Corinthians who had challenged his authority as an apostle. So he has a little bit of uh, tongue in cheek. He says, are, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors and far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Listen to him. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in frequent dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these other things, there's the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. <laughs> I love that last statement, because it's one thing to deal with the ravenous wolves of the culture, it's another to deal with the stinky sheep within the fold. Paul sort of says, and besides all of that, I worry about you all. <laughs> That's, that was Paul's experience, and you remember he was called to carry the name of Christ to the Gentiles, to kings, and to other peoples of Israel, and to suffer for the name of Christ, and that he did. When we come to Acts chapter 18, where we find Paul in Corinth, we're introduced to a theme that lies behind the text, but all over the text, and that's the theme of God's providence. Providence. Providence can be defined as God's powerful sovereignty. It refers to how God works in unexpected or unseen ways by which to encourage and embolden his servants, as well as to accomplish his ministry in the world. Providence comes from the Latin root, pro, meaning before, and uh, vidar, which means to see. And in essence, if God sees it before, if God sees it, he sees to it. And it means he will take care of it. He'll supply what's needed. In Genesis, when Abraham was asked to, as a test to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, and just as he's ready to plunge the knife into his son, God stops him. There's a, a ram caught in a thicket. And then God says, 
God himself will provide, which is interesting in Hebrew, God will see to it. In other words, God will do it. See, there's a difference between providence and miracle. The miraculous happens when God suspends the laws of nature to intervene beyond human possibility or involvement. But providence is God's supernatural governance of the natural phenomena and human activity in order to accomplish his will in this world. The doctrine of God's providence teaches that God orders everything in the universe according to his sovereign will to display his own glory. Everything happens for a reason, both the big things, the small things, good things, and even evil things. As Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we all know Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. To stay faithful in the, in the face of adversity, one needs to have a developing appreciation for the providence of God. We'll see it in our passage today in Acts chapter 18 how God orchestrates a convergence of place, people, and political policies even to facilitate the mission of the church in order to take the gospel to the world. One of the ways, number one, in the, in the way that God is providential is in the team that he assembles around Paul, the value of a team. It says in your notes, and I'll read some scriptures that'll be on the screen and some that won't, so hang with me. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. I just wanna stop right there. He left Athens and went to Corinth. That's no small statement. Why, when he was depleted and discouraged, would God send Paul to Corinth of all places? The unseemly Las Vegas or Amsterdam of, the, of his day. What, what an unexpected place God asked Paul to make him known. The context of Corinth, before we give you the statement there, in the context of Corinth, Athens was the intellectual capital of the world. Corinth was the immorality capital of the time. Athens was known for its education, Corinth for its entertainment. If there was a root a sin that bothered the Athenians, it was their pride of what they thought they knew. The root sin, obviously, in Corinth was uh, the lust of the flesh. Corinth was the largest and most cosmopolitan city of Greece in the first century. It's located on the southern end of the isthmus, uh, that narrow land bridge that connects the Peloponnesus with the Greek mainland, and it was a major center for commerce. It has two ports, Lachium on the west, which gave access to the Adriatic Sea, and Centrea on the other, on the east, opening to the Aegean Sea. Some of you have been there and traveled there and you'll understand this. Corinth was a critical site for east-west trade. Ironically, 5,000, excuse me, 500 to 700 BC before Christ, centuries before Christ, they thought of how could they cut a path through that narrow land bridge in order to allow access between the Adriatic and the Aegean Sea. It was thought about, it was conceived, it was even designed, but that channel never got cut out for all kinds of reasons until 1883. It's called the Corinthian, 
canal. Unfortunately, because of the limestone and the construction, it opens and closes because of landslides. And this past year, it was closed for a while. It was open for a brief time during the summer. I understand it's going to be closed again for the fall. All, like all maritime ports, it attracted its share of the undesirables. And Corinth became the crossroads of corruption. As if accentuating their sinfulness, there was a temple to Aphrodite celebrating the Greek goddess of love perched high above, the, above uh, Corinth on a hill that's called Acro or Mount Corinth. It's a 1900 foot hill that dominated the city from its perimeter. One record says that at one time, catch this, just so you understand the atmosphere that God sent Paul into, there were 10,000 temple prostitutes at the temple of Aphrodite. Corinth was a cesspool of corruption. Even its name became symbolic of sinfulness. Among the Greeks, the word translated to live like a Corinthian was a verb that meant simply to be immoral. How would God make himself known in such an unexpected place? The providence of God is seen especially in this as the way he builds a team around the Apostle Paul, the value of a team. The players on Paul's team, just listen to this passage. And he found there at Corinth, he just happened to find a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to live, leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, and they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned, Pastor Cody talked about these words last time, he reasoned, he dialogued in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade with passion both Jews and Gentiles. Now, with the players on Paul's team, how did God work providentially to pull some team members to Paul that would one day be very valuable to the ministry? Well, it just so happened, quote, quote, there was an edict of the emperor Claudius. In AD 49, just two years before Paul gets to Corinth, he issued a decree to expel the Jewish community from Rome, and according to Suetonius, a first century Roman historian, the Jewish community got in conflict with the Jewish Christians, as was uh, you know, fairly much of a habit in those early days, because they followed somebody named Christus, spelled with an E, which is their way of spelling Christ. Because as we know in Acts chapter two, there were people from Rome that came to the day of Pentecost, that message got taken back to Rome and there was a church that began in Rome that Paul never got to visit until he ended up in prison and he writes that book to Romans saying, someday I hope to come see you. God in his providence had Jewish Christians in Rome. God in his providence caused Claudius to say, let's get them out of here. And he kicked the Jews out and they just happened. This couple came to Corinth right in time for Paul to arrive. Now, here's what's fun about this, is that Aquila and Priscilla, this is a power couple. They play a key role in Paul's ministry at Corinth, at Ephesus, uh, you know, and, uh, and then back to Rome after the edict is let go a few years later. But watch this. They just happened to be of the same heritage, Jewish heritage. They were already believers, or Acts would have told us about their conversion. They were experienced travelers. They went from Rome to Corinth to Ephesus to Rome. 
and they just happened to have the skill of tent making, which just happened to be Paul's skill as well. You'd almost think God was in charge. But this couple became so valuable that they traveled with him. Their home became a house church, as we find later. And they later returned to Rome because he greets them in that letter because Claudius dies in about AD 55. So just a few years later, the edict is no longer in effect. So here is this couple that goes from Rome to Corinth, travels with Paul to Ephesus. They go back to Rome, and at each place they have a strategic part in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Then comes Silas and Timothy. They had been stationed back at Thessalonica. They sent Paul on to Athens. Now they come and they bring, according to Philippians, they bring a gift and Paul no longer has to work as a tent maker because they bring a gift from Philippi that no other church, Paul says, participated quite like the Philippians. And that gift from Philippi allowed Paul to give himself without hesitation to the ministry of the word. See, with the value of a team, let me give you a principle of application. F find a group of faithful people with whom you can live the Christian life and encourage one another. <clears throat> find a group of people, a home group, a small group that you can find who are people that'll walk the life of Christ with you and uh, encourage you to love and good works. See, that's the value of a small group of people. My, my philosophy in leadership when I came into leadership at Dallas Seminary was to find a group of leaders I could love and live with and have fun with the rest of my life as God would have it. We had a long time of a team that stayed together and is still together with some you know, additions and things like that. The beauty of a church like this that some of you have been around a long time and we've only been here 16, 17 years, but some of you have been here for 40 some years. A group of people, faithful, stay together, grow together, encourage one another. Part of the providential work of God behind the scenes is to put people together in a team of ministry that will have great effect. Don't, don't miss that opportunity. Number two, a second reason of God's providence is that he wanted Paul to understand that it wasn't all dependent upon him. God was working, but the importance of decisions that are individual. Our response to the message of Christ is the most important decision of our life. And therefore, the second application, as you'll see in your notes, is to understand the justice that lies behind the message of God's grace in the person and work of Christ. Understand the justice that lies behind the message. When Paul and has Silas and Timothy come, it says that Paul was occupied intensely he was intensely absorbed with the word, there in verse five, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, that the Christ, the Messiah, just happens to be Jesus. They opposed him and they reviled him, which is the word for blasphemy. And he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent, from now on I'm going to the Gentiles. Now that seems a little abrupt. But it has its pattern back in the gospels with Jesus because uh, a decision when confronted with the gospel is the most important decision that you can make. And there's both justice and grace at work. Justice is that God has to 
condemn and judge sin, graces that God has worked in such a way to satisfy his justice in Christ that he can offer grace and mercy to the sinner. To reject God's grace and mercy in Christ is to invite self-condemnation. See, the person of Christ, he is the Messiah. He is the promised Messiah. It's the resurrection that authenticates that as we see all the way through the book of Acts. But there's a problem of self-condemnation when one rejects that message. There's a principle that you need to catch, and that is this, that... uh, you and I can never be credited with our salvation. It's not of works. There is no merit. We are not righteous in of ourselves. You and I can never be credited with our salvation, but God also can never be charged with our condemnation. We have to admit that we're saved by grace. The person who rejects that has to admit that they are self-condemned because they have not believed. Powerful verse for that is John chapter three in verse 18. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. See, people who reject the truth bear responsibility for their own judgment. Throughout the Old Testament, there were visible signs of uprooting a plant or burying a sash by the river Euphrates like Jeremiah did or lying on his side like Ezekiel did and things like that. There were visual aids that projected what it meant for people to come under judgment. And like that, you have in this text where Paul, like the Old Testament prophets, says, I, I shake out my garments. It's a figurative expression that I'm, 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 I'm basically shaking out the garments Whatever judgment you deserved is now you're pouring it on your own head. And Jesus had one similar in the Gospels where it says that if they don't accept, of Matthew chapter 10, if they don't respond to you, shake the dust off your shoes and keep walking. That goes back to an Old Testament principle that God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. In other words, there is a limit. There is a limit to your rejection where God no longer says you have an opportunity. We don't know when that is and we can never presume upon it, but there's a point when he says, that's it. Your blood is upon your own head. You are self-condemned. There are some who believe and receive the salvation that God offers. There are those who reject because of disbelief. I love the principle that you and I ought to remember in our witnessing and that is even though some don't, doesn't mean others won't. Just because some don't believe doesn't mean others won't believe. And here we have that same thing right here in Acts chapter 18. Look at verses seven and eight. He left there and he went to the house of a a man named uh, Titius Justus, who was a worshiper of God and his house was next door to the synagogue. Now watch this juxtaposition. Here's the synagogue of the Jews in which Paul is ministering. Here next door is the house of a guy who comes to faith He's a, he's, a, he's a worshiper, he's probably a Gentile. He comes to faith. And Crispus, who is the ruler of the synagogue, somehow, some way, comes to Christ and believes in the Lord with all, of his, with all of his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now here in the cesspool of the culture of Corinth, 
Here is a guy who's living next door to the Jews who don't uh, believe that Jesus is the Messiah as a rule. He comes to faith. Somehow, either through his influence or God's providence in Paul's ministry, you have Crispus, the, the, the ruler of the synagogue. I mean, that's like the pastor of the wrong church who comes to faith as well as some other Corinthians and there's belief and there's households that are coming to Christ and there's people who are being baptized. God's at work in the city of Corinth. In that unexpected city, you have Titus Justus, you have Crispus. A little later, we'll find that Sosthenes all come to faith. And ironically, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he mentions Crispus as one of the guys that he baptized and a guy by the name of Gaius. And it's no wonder the Jews are upset when their leader of the synagogue comes to, comes to faith in Christ. A third evidence of providence comes directly to Paul from God. And here's where we find a little hint that Paul was at his end. He was at his wit's end. It says in verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now that had to be an incredible encouragement to Paul because of what we saw at Philippi, at Thessalonica, at Berea, at Athens, and, and then everything else that he described in that passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that we read. That leads us to a, a, a principle here in the power of a promise, that courage is found in the promise of God's presence and in the assurance of his purposes. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't shut up. Don't be silent. I'm with you. I'll protect you. And I have people in this city. I love this. I have people in this city yet to be saved. I have many people in Corinth. That's like saying that, that, that God, God's got all kinds of people he wants to find in Las Vegas. <laughs> or Amsterdam. Or San Francisco or Austin. <laughs> See, God's providence is at work because God is present. Listen to Jeremiah, it says, then the Lord said to me, you have seen well for I'm watching over my word to perform it. Echoes, there's a Deuteronomy passage, be strong and courageous, don't fear and dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you and he will not leave you or forsake you. There's an old Indian legend that a Cherokee recalls about a young boy's right to passage. A right to passage into manhood, and as the ritual begins, the father takes his young son into the forest, blindfolds him, and leaves him alone. And the boy is required to sit on a stump the entire night and not to remove the blindfold until he sees the, the dawn of the first lights of, of, of the sun shining through it. And once he survives the night, he's then considered a man. Boys not allowed to tell any other boys about it because each must have their own experience and come into manhood on their own. And naturally, the boy is terrified. He's scared to death, and he can hear all kinds of noises coming that are not familiar and strange and scary, and there's no question that wild animals are all around him and even other humans that may want to cause him harm. And the wind blows the grass, the earth the shakes his stump, but the boy sits quietly and stoically, never getting up or removing his blindfold. It's the only way he can become a man. And finally, what seems like an eternity, 
the terrible night is over. Dawn's first rays of sunlight appear. The boy now takes off his blindfold and then he discovers his father is sitting on the stump next to him. And he's been watching his son the entire night, protecting him from any potential harm. Uh, we've got something better than an earthly father sitting on the stump. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Second Chronicles says this, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. And because uh, they were disobedient, he says, you've done foolishly in this, for from now on you'll have wars. You could have had the presence and power of the Lord, but because you reject it, now comes discipline. Providence is that sovereign supervision of God over the affairs of human that the purposes of God get accomplished. The value of a team, he pulls, from an edict of Rome, he pulls this couple to Corinth just in time for Paul. He brings Silas and Timothy just in time to support Paul for his ministry. He's got Crispus coming to Christ. He's got Sosthenes coming to Christ. He's got Titius Justice coming to Christ. And then as if that wasn't enough, they pull Paul before the tribunal in front of a guy by the name of Gallio. Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia. You can read it in the text. And they charge him before the tribunal, which is the term for Bema. And if you've ever been to Corinth, there's a rock wall and they have a sign on it called the Bema. It's the place where judgment was made in the, in the courts and it was a place where they judged athletic races in the street. And Galileo basically says, this is not a crime for him to share Christ is not a crime of Rome. Let him alone. They get so mad that they then beat up Sosthenes. And by the way, Sosthenes is one of the co-authors of the book of Corinthians. So you have another Jewish guy from the synagogue who comes to Christ. But this message of Galileo is, is incredible. Galileo becomes the providential means by which God fulfills his promise of protection. And it gives him 18 more months to minister in Corinth without objection. In other words, God is behind the decision of Gallio. We've discovered uh, the Gallio uh, description. It was found in the late 19th century, or excuse me, early 20th century, at a site called Delphi, which is uh, on the other side of Greece. And it's, a, it's an edict that comes, it's a, an, a, a letter from Claudius, that Roman emperor again, who basically is assigning Gallio his role in Corinth. And Gallio now makes a public policy that allows Paul to have freedom. We have an inscription of that that we said in, in the middle of that square of the red, that's where Gallio's name is mentioned. It's called the Delphi inscription or the Gallio inscription. So not only is Crispus and Sosthenes, but here is God working through a public official to make a decision that allows freedom in the culture for Paul to have a ministry. And until he's arrested and is taken to Caesarea and then to Rome, the rest of Paul's ministry is basically protected because of this decision. You'd almost think God was in control. And that leads us to the evidence of a commitment. In 18 to 23, taking leave of them, I love what Paul says, I will return to you if God wills. There's that providential permission question. If God wills, and they set sail from Ephesus, and after spending some time there, he departs and went from place to place, next to next, the region of Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. I want you to see two things here. 
Number one is Paul's humility. Now, now you, you need to know and understand this. Paul is saying, if the Lord wills, I'm going to keep this up. I love the principle, hold your plans with an open hand. Hold all your plans with an open hand. If the Lord wills is that theological conviction that stands as the foundation of a trust in God's providence. When I was the president at Dallas Seminary, I, I had a phrase, what would God allow? What, what would God allow us to do in China? What would God allow us to do with a Spanish translation of all of our courses? And if the Lord wills, uh, could we do it in Arabic? And we, just, we were just dreaming. What would God allow us to do to take theological education to the world? It's a, re it's a recognition that without the will of the Lord, it's not going to happen. James cautioned us in James 4. He says, come now, you who say, today and tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year in trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, not we're going to do this, we're going to do that. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. His humility is trusting the providential permission of God. But his priority is seen in the last line, strengthening all the disciples. That period of time that's described there, that starts in the second missionary journey, and, and this is the completion of it, is a three-year ministry. Just for fun, the first missionary journey takes two years. The second missionary journey takes three years, just a little mnemonic. It covers, are you ready for this? This is Paul hoofing it with his friends, 2,000 miles on foot and 1,000 miles by boat. And what is he doing? He's keeping the main thing, the main thing. We've seen this pattern. There's proclamation. There's rejection or reception. There's God's divine intervention. And there's a growing church of committed disciples. So I implore you and speak into the mirror to myself. Join a team of Christ followers and encourage one another. Understand that the importance for every person is a decision that they make concerning Christ. When responded to in the positive, only God gets the glory. When we respond in the negative, there's self-imposed guilt. It's not ours to determine that. We're not the ones that make that transaction. We're just to stay faithful with that witness. And when the going gets tough in that witnessing, remember that God is there with you. He's sitting on the stump, proverbially. He hasn't let you go. Keep on speaking. Don't stop. I've got a number of people who still need to come to Christ in the city. And then take the Great Commission personally. Join in this mission of God where Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail against it. We're in a mission on this globe that God has a plan and a purpose. And the big story is it's going to turn out really well when you get on his side. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, would you be pleased to deepen our appreciation and a growing appreciation for your providential work? Even if there's no suspension of natural law, you're at work in the little things of our lives, opening up opportunities, granting conversations, putting people in places, accomplishing your purposes. Because you are here. As we saw last week, you're not very far away from anybody. And you ask all people to repent. Because one day there is a day of judgment. But today is an opportunity to respond in faith. Keep us faithful. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Deepen our commitment. And expand our vision for what you want to do in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.